comes from the Greek word philosophia, which means love of wisdom. That's a great meaning for a word, isn't it? Love of wisdom. That's what philosophy is all about. You want to know more. You have a desire to want to know more. So you look into philosophy. Now, when I think of the early philosophers, my imagination, and that can be very dangerous when my imagination gets involved in anything, but my imagination paints a picture of a bunch of guys hanging out in a street corner all day long talking about whatever comes to mind. And that's what the imagination thing, and that, that's what you would think about. Just a bunch of guys getting together and talking. That could be a bunch of women, too. But I would dare say that women don't talk about the same things that men do. And men probably talk about just a bunch of goofy things all the time. And women talk about serious subjects. That's a line to win points at home, everybody. So keeping that in mind, then my imagine takes me to today's barber shop. Now you guys know what they do in the barber shop. Guys are talking what has to be all day long. The barber ain't cut maybe but two heads of hair the entire day because he's in the middle of the discussion with him too. So that can't be very good for profit. But that's what they would do. And that could be over the course of five hours. That could take all day. One of the things I hated to do when I was younger was to go to a barber shop, the old style barber shop. I can go into a bar, I can go into a place today and get my hair cut and I'm in and out in sometimes 15 minutes. You go to a barber shop today, you might get out in 15 hours because of all the chatting going on. But that's a place where they're philosophizing. And I know I have hair on my head that grows and it does get cut. So you might be looking at me right now as a bald dude, but I get it shaved. So there. And it only takes 15 minutes. It don't take a long time. But I digress. So on the other hand, the other thing I brings to mind when I think about philosophers is a bunch of guys getting together at McDonald's, sitting over coffee and an egg McMuffin and talking and talking and talking and talking or even loudly discussing. Some McDonald's that you go to will have full-blown philosophic sessions where everybody in the restaurant can hear them. And they're talking, or even maybe even cussing, about politics, current events. The conversation will mercifully end when the guy from the shop where my car is being serviced will call me and say, your car is ready. And that's when the conversation ends because I don't have to listen to it anymore. I just leave. But that's what I think about when I think about philosophers. Just talking all day and supposedly reasoning or trying to convince someone of what they believe. But it's really not that simple. To be clear, philosophy is not just a bunch of guys getting together, talking smack, or, you'll love this, playing the dozens, it's not just a bunch of guys getting together doing stuff like that. Amen? I hope that's what you think. You don't think that way. But back in the day, 
Now, when I say back in the day, let's talk about 500 B.C. Now, that's back in the day. That's way back. There were very, very serious discussions that took place about life, about water, earth, air, atoms, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Very serious discussions that took place. Of the class of philosophical all-stars, if you wanted to rate all-stars for philosophers, one of the greatest was Socrates. Socrates lived from 470 to about 399 B.C., around that time. He lived in Athens, Greece. If you know anything about Athens, Greece at that time, that was the hotbed of activity throughout the entire world. Everybody wanted to go to Athens. Everybody wanted to be in Athens. That was the place to be. And Socrates was right in the middle of all of it. It was the progressive hotbed for discussion, for thought processes, for thinking about life in general. He was in the middle of all of that. If you ever get the opportunity, you're going to want to read about Socrates. Socrates, of all the historical philosophers, never wrote down any of the things that he said. He never wrote anything down. He thought that writing stuff down would diminish the words that he spoke. That was his thought process. He loved to talk. He loved to speak to people. He loved to reason with them. But he never wrote anything down. If it wasn't for Plato, who was a student of Socrates, we wouldn't even know who Socrates was. Plato is the one who wrote down stuff about Socrates. Plato was one of those guys that wanted to record everything. He wrote down all kinds of stuff. Had a good memory, too. So Plato was fascinated with Socrates. And he wrote down everything that was meaningful about him. And I mean everything. He even noted that Socrates was married. He was a married man. And there were many occasions <laughs> where his wife would send him out for errands. Okay? Picture yourself in this situation, men. Your wife sends you out to run an errand to go pick up something. Run to the grocery store and get me some cereal. Or run to the grocery store, we need some milk because we're almost out of it. Socrates, the word we get back to his wife, that Socrates never made it to the grocery store wherever he was sent to because he's hanging out on the street corner, talking to folks all day long. No errand was run, no nothing. That was Socrates. So it got to the point where Socrates was so occupied with having these daily ongoing discussions with the brothers in the neighborhood, whenever the chance was that he had it, Socrates' wife said, okay, I'll fix him. I'm going to hide all his clothes. So that way he can't get out and have these conversations with these guys. I'm not getting stuff done around the house anyway. So he just can't go out. Well, Socrates was undeterred. He would run outside naked through the streets to his meeting place with the guys. It got to the point where basically they would have, they got tired of seeing this old man coming up naked, running up to him wanting to talk about stuff. They would keep robes on the side for him so he could cover up. So what does that tell you about Socrates? 
it tells you that he loved philosophy. But there's also a very famous quote about Socrates and marriage. And he says, my advice to you, this is a quote for Socrates, my advice to you is to get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. If not, you will become a philosopher. So that kind of gives you the picture of how Socrates had his home life when it came to being married. I can't say that he didn't ask for trouble with his wife, but that's what he put himself into. Now, Socrates was never, he never claimed to be a teacher. Never claimed to be a teacher. He was a thinker. A thinker. Very important for you to understand that. He didn't claim to be a teacher. Even though he's having all these conversations with people, he was a thinker. That was his specialty. In his thinking, he came up with very wise sayings. Now, Socrates was also quite controversial with his sayings. He was so controversial, he ticked off a lot of people by the way he was having these conversations with people. To the point where people got so mad at him, he was arrested for subversion, incivility, and corruption of minors. In other words, he built up a history of having these conversations and having philosophical discussions with people. And people would come up to him and, and they, he would make people feel stupid. And that's what would happen. And so people got so angry with him over time, they said, we don't need this guy around. We're going to put him in jail. He's just causing all kinds of controversy. Get rid of this guy. And he was arrested for it. And back in that time, that was a really big deal. Today, you couldn't get arrested for that. Or could you? I don't know. You know what I mean? So, in his defense, he had to go before a jury of 501 peers. A jury of 501. Where he had to make a defense. Now, in this defense before 501 people, when he went before this jury, there were a couple of things that he said that were very notable. They really stood out to me personally. First of all, he said, for each time those present think I am wise in these things in which I refute others. In other words, when he's having a conversation thinking people thinking he's smart when he's really not. The fact is, men, in reality, God is wise. And in this oracle, it is saying human wisdom is worth little or nothing. That's what he said in his defense. Now, that statement where he is saying God is wise and human wisdom amounts to little or nothing was a profound statement. I'm not even sure that Socrates even knew what he was saying. Sure, he had knowledge about God, but let me go a little bit further and explain what was happening here. It was a common belief at that time, according to the pre-Socratic practice of Homeric religion, that all men, whether they were good or evil, would wind up in Hades after death. And in Hades, they would be there in a state of consciousness and not punishment. In other words, they'd just be in another room someplace after they die. And there would be no consequences to whatever happened, whether they were good or evil. That was the prevailing thought back then. But now, again, all these thinkers were talking about, well, are there gods 
or is there one God? You see what I'm saying? You see where the controversy comes up now? If you start talking about God being the one who is over all these other gods, that's going to ruffle some feathers. But that was a very profound statement. Socrates was implying that he didn't know for sure what to expect after death. But he reasoned he would ask the shades in Hades if they had any knowledge. So perhaps without even realizing it, he was referring to the one true source of wisdom that could have answered a number of his questions pertaining to knowledge. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. We'll take a look at one of those things that we need to see as we look at this. Socrates loved seeking wisdom. You can have a question about how he went about that, but he was deliberately putting out and thinking about, where is it that I get this wisdom? If God is the only one who has the wisdom, then what we know amounts to little or nothing. If you look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from one source and one source only. God. Now, we go to school, we go through primary school, elementary school, high school. Some of us have been to college, some of us are going to college. We'll learn more and more. But we need to understand that true wisdom is not in academics by itself. Yes, we need to know things like reading and writing. What was it? Reading, writing, arithmetic. We need to know reading and writing. We need to know how to add and subtract. We need to know how to multiply and divide. We don't have to know calculus, but it would be good to be exposed to it. But where does that wisdom really come from? The ability to learn, the ability to grow, the ability to know, it comes from God. Amen? Serious stuff. Let's look at another place where we if, we, if we don't feel like we have enough wisdom, go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 5. It's interesting how scripture gives us very clear indicators. It doesn't assume that you have everything together. Amen? It doesn't assume that you know everything. You don't know everything. You learn every day. You thought you know something. But you don't have it all together. At least Socrates was honest enough to admit that himself. He still was trying to learn. But it says in James chapter 1 verse 5, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. Socrates was correct in his assessment 
that human wisdom is worth little or nothing. He was merely proclaiming that God's wisdom is superior to man's wisdom. Now, you know, a lot of folks have that backwards. We think we know so much, we're so clever, we have all this stuff together because we've got PhD, DDI, whatever all the degrees we have, that we're all special. And can't nobody tell us anything. Actually, I'm telling you what you should be doing. I'm telling you how to live your life. I'm telling you how to behave. I'm telling you what you should be doing. We come in arrogance rather than humility. When we don't understand where this knowledge and wisdom really comes from. You are blessed to be able to know as much as you do because of who? Jesus Christ. You know where the wisdom comes from. You know that he gives you the ability to think, to learn, to understand. And there's nothing wrong with getting degrees. There's nothing wrong with bettering yourself. There's nothing wrong with learning because we need people to be able to guide other people who don't know as much. And that's fine. We need counselors. We need people who have the ability to talk to other people, to reason with other people. We need that. But we need folks to also know where that wisdom starts with, where it comes from, and how it should be imparted. In humility, with understanding that if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in. I wouldn't be blessed enough to be able to give that advice. I wouldn't be blessed enough to be where I'm at, where I am, if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true for everyone in this room. Everyone. Understand that Scripture even addresses those people who believe they know more than God does. And in our arrogance, even though God created us, we pay attention to the world giving us accolades, saying we're great people, we've done these great things. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 25. We need to understand that what we know, again, we are so far beneath God's wisdom that we have to put ourselves sometimes in check and understand that. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, when we talk about foolishness of God, that shows that God, you know, God has a sense of humor. Because he gave us senses of humor, all of us. We are created in his image. So he created us as emotional people. But when we talk about the foolishness of God, it far surpasses where we are. There's no comparison. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, that's basically giving you an analogy. Because God is not weak. He's very strong. There's nothing weak about God. God is eternal. But he's showing you the strongest man you can ever think of cannot compare to what can be perceived as a weakness of God. Flip over to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 19 and 20. 
I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. The reasonings of the wise are meaningless. So how would you summarize this? When you think you know something, you don't know anything. Amen? Amen. When you think you know something, you don't know anything. We said earlier that we never stop learning. When you think you know something, you've just stopped learning. And you really don't know anything. True wisdom comes from God. As I learn more and more from my own personal studies in business, in corporate communications, and especially in pursuit of my master's in Christian studies, I readily see that I didn't know As much as I thought when I was first asked to bring a message here. That was back in 2003. That was a little while ago. I know now I have more knowledge about Christ compared to, and the things of Christ than compared to that time in my life. Because I look back at that and there was actually an old tape that was whipped out and I heard it and I'm a big critic of myself. In my mind, it was awful. I didn't think it was that good. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but it was awful. And all it told me was that I had a lot to learn. I still had a lot to learn about Christ. And we all do. Amen? I'm smart enough to know now that I'm beginning to learn more And it's because of God's graciousness. God has been very gracious to all of us to be able to have a greater understanding of his word and what that means in your life. He's been very gracious. He's brought us from that proverbial point A to point B, from where we were to where we are today. And I pray that all of us can say we've grown in that time and really learn something. That's what Socrates was trying to do, trying to elevate people to think about life and really grow and learn. Now, the other statement, the other philosophical statement that Socrates made was also very profound to me. And I want you to listen very carefully because it can it can trip you up if you don't pay attention. The greatest good for humanity to make arguments every day about virtue And examine myself and others. That was a great thing to be able to do that. To be able to do that. And that the unexamined life is not livable for a person. The unexamined life. Now let's expound on that. Because that needs a little bit of work. Because of the way the quote was taken. Now when you think about an unexamined life. The first thing that comes to mind. Here again my imagination. 
Remember the slogan that the United Negro College Fund would put out in commercials? And this was about 40 years ago, which astonishes me how time is going by so fast. This was 40 years ago where they ran commercials. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Please tell me you remember that. Okay. (laughs) Some of the young people probably won't remember that, although they did have some recent commercials that did actually talk about that. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Now, that phrase, just so you know where it came from, was coined by an advertising agency, Young and Rubicam, for the purpose of promoting the United Negro College Fund scholarship fund. That's what they were trying to do, raise money for scholarships so these kids could go to school. But that phrase has taken on an iconic status, not just for its boldness and profound truth, and not just for black students. That's for everybody. All of mankind. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. That's what Socrates was saying. If you're not examining, if you're not looking at things, if you're not thinking about things, if you're not discussing things in your life, what are you doing with your time? And don't think that that's a small thing. Because the moment you don't look outside of yourself and start looking and examining things in your life, you are very self-centered. It's all about me, myself, and I. And what I can do for myself next. What was that accent? That could be anybody. When you're selfish, when you're looking at only yourself, you're not a thinker at all. The only thing you're thinking about is what you can do to get over. And that is not making a contribution for society. Sorry about that. On a personal note, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But even with this knowledge, I can't, in my own flesh, maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ unless I'm doing what? Self-examination. Self-examination. We're talking about examining. It's okay to say, you know, let's, how, we, how can we take care of our family? How can we do this? But we've got to go beyond that. Self-examination now when it comes to your relationship. Self-examination of my life in the flesh. Self-examination of sinful behavior. Always the need for repentance. Self-examination. Repentance in order to receive the forgiveness under the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation's taken care of. We're talking about relationship development and growing in that relationship. My act of humbling myself helps me to keep 
reflecting on my need for Jesus Christ. When you humble yourself, you see how Jesus can work in your life. When you're not humble, you can't see any of that stuff. You ain't even looking for it. When you're not humble, you're not looking to Christ. It also helps me to see others the way Jesus sees them. Now, I've learned something about myself. I've learned as I've gotten older, as you go through experiences in life, every now and then you just have a lower tolerance for stupid. Does anybody, anybody get where I'm going with that? You, you have a lower tolerance for incivility. Let's use that word. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. However, there is an opportunity for you to go back to the Lord and say, where is this coming from? Is this really a godly response or is it a fleshly response? You see what I mean by where there's always room for growth? Now, I'm saying this is as I got older. Because when you're younger, you put up with a lot of stuff sometimes. You don't necessarily respond. You don't necessarily say things when people do stuff. You just kind of look at them. And they look at you, they laugh at you, whatever it is, and and you just let it go. I am less likely to accept that type of behavior today without some sort of a response. And I pray that it's always a godly response. Amen? Hey, everybody in this church knows where I'm coming with this now. A godly response. And it requires thinking. And thinking before you speak. And thinking before you act. And praying about how you manage that situation. All the stuff that I just talked about requires self-examination. How would life be for a person who does not see the need... To examine oneself. Socrates says this is a wasted life. A wasted mind. In order to live a virtuous life, there must be an internal reasoning. Self-examination. An internal reasoning. And recognition that you need to have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we as believers have to constantly seek, constantly strive to do. And you know what? It has nothing to do with how tired you are or how you're feeling or what's going on. You know, I've had such a rough day. All I want to do is go to bed. I'm so tired. That doesn't really matter. Even in the midst of your fatigue, and you're going to be tired. See, we can use all kinds of excuses for not doing stuff, and they're all the wrong reasons. Just because you're tired, I'm tired of folks. I'm tired of folks messing with me. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to close my door. I'm going to go to bed. 
This ain't got to do nothing to do with other folks. It's got to do with you. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is what we're talking about. Folks ain't going to make you do something about your relationship. You have to take care of that. You need to see how Christ, in your fatigue, in your tiredness, can still make you a light before others. Because they don't see how tired you are as much as they see the light of Christ in your life. Going at it, going after it, doing it. That's what people need to see. You might be tired. You might have a busted ankle. You might have stuff happen to you. That doesn't change anything. You're still a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you go. Whatever you're doing. People need to see how you're living a meaningful, purpose-filled life. Amen? Socrates was constantly seeking answers to truth and wisdom. Maybe he didn't realize it, but those answers were right in front of him all the time. There was a lot that was going on back in that time. A lot was said about the gods and whether there was a god and all kinds of discussions were taking place. Let's face it, there wasn't anything to get in the way of that. There was no TV or radio or anything like that. They had plenty of time to talk about it. But did Socrates really see where true wisdom comes from? He talked about it. It's sad to think that people can live their entire lives without making a choice to live a purpose-filled life for Jesus Christ. We've got people living their entire lives People who choose not to go to church. People who reason in their own way. A reason not to make a commitment for Christ. That's tragic. That's tragic. That's why we need to make sure. When I talk about the importance of a core group. Church members. Prayerful. And again, prayerful for everybody we know who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Relatives, family members, close family members, remain diligent in the faith. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. When we live as believers, and you know, these are words that are written on paper, but this is a way of life for every believer in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that we should be doing every day, work or play, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we're talking to. Making an effort to do this. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. 
self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's what you're to do every day of your life. If you want to take this as a key verse for how you live, here's a verse for you. This is what you do. How do you do all these things? There has to be a deliberate effort. Notice how it says, make every effort. Every effort. That means, no matter what's going on in your life, you make the effort. You think through things. Certainly. Important to do so. But now, channel that thought process towards what God is doing in your life and you making every effort to grow in your faith. And then using all those other adjectives. Goodness, or those other nouns. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, with love. Everyone needs to see love in your life. Don't leave out that word love. It's that love of Christ that reaches people for Christ. Wisdom and knowledge without love is meaningless. You understand? It's meaningless. Love must be in the picture. Socrates was a thinker. He thought very deeply about matters when it came to wisdom and knowledge and wanting to know more. And we should do the same thing. But now that we have the ability, though, to go and look to where that wisdom comes from, how much greater are we in our ability to make a positive testimony for Christ? God is the one to be glorified in how we live. Amen? Remember that. Socrates gave the indication of where godly wisdom truly comes from. Not from man, but from God himself. You live your life in the same way. That's what's most important. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you for the lessons that you give us about where true wisdom comes from. Wisdom that's godly. We know that man-made wisdom cannot stand without your enabling it. We thank you for the ability to continue to seek your word. We thank you for teaching us something about ourselves through your word. We thank you that you minister to us with your word. Help us to maintain and grow and develop a close relationship with you. And we're thankful that we will respond. We know that we're learning something new every day. We know that we will continue to learn something new as long as we are seeking you. We just thank you and give you all the praise for all of these things. We ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We cannot know about godly wisdom unless we have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives us the power of the Holy Spirit.